Al-Bashir, your source of Islamic literature, presents the lives of the prophets, part two. Alhamdulillah, salatu wassalam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. When Musa passed away, the leadership was handed down to Yusha bin Nun. Yusha bin Nun, who was mentioned in Quran as a servant, a fata. إِذْ قَالَ مُوسَىٰ لِفَتَهِ Yusha bin Nun was a servant with Musa. Being a servant with Musa, he was close to the revelation. Close to the teacher. And he was a righteous student of this teacher. So when Musa passed away, the leadership was handed down to Yusha bin Nun. And Yusha bin Nun is a Nabi. Yusha bin Nun is a Nabi, but he is not mentioned in the Quran. He is mentioned in the hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The name of Yusha bin Nun is not in, not in Quran, but it is from hadith and it is in the Sahih hadith. Yusha bin Nun, in English, Joshua. Yusha bin Nun became the leader of the children of Israel. The children of Israel were delivered to the Holy Land. And they were victorious under his leadership. This did not happen with Musa السلام, and it did not happen with Harun. Rather, it happened in the time of Yusha bin Nun. Musa and Harun, they passed away when Bani Israel were in the wilderness. Rasulullah tells us a clue of the reason why this victory was delayed. The children of Israel who came out from Egypt were raised up in servitude and slavery. So they were weak. And they were not fit for victory. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made them stay in the wilderness for 40 years until all of that generation passed away. And a new generation who was raised up in freedom under the leadership and the teaching of Musa and Harun, these are the ones who were given the victory to enter Jerusalem. The ones who were raised up by Musa and Harun in a free environment. Because the environment in Egypt was not suitable to raise up a generation of victory. Rasulullah says, لم يبقى مَعَهُ أَحَدٍ مِمَّنْ عَبَدَ الْعِجْلِ Rasulullah says, none of the ones, none of the ones who worshipped the calf entered into Jerusalem. All of that old generation who worshipped the calf were dead. A new generation was raised up in the desert, in that harsh environment, under the teachings of Torah, under the hands of Musa and Harun. These are the ones who were qualified for leadership. We learn something interesting from them. There is no doubt, there is no doubt that Musa is the greatest Nabi of Bani Israel. How come did the victory happen in the time of Yusha bin Nun? It tells us that it's not enough to have a leader. Musa, Musa is the best that Bani Israel have seen and he is the founder of this nation. Nevertheless, victory did not happen on his hands even though he desired it so greatly. He wanted to enter into the Holy Land. And we know how much he desired that. 
that when the angel of death came to take his soul, he hit him. And then when he knew that this is his appointed time, he said, I will die now, but oh Allah, make me die as close to Jerusalem as possible. Ramiyat Hajar, a throw of a stone. He said, if I cannot enter into Jerusalem alive, at least bury me as close as possible to Jerusalem. But that did not happen in the time of Musa because the generation which were with Musa did not deserve it. So now when we keep on thinking that, I mean, we're waiting for Al-Mahdi. Everyone is waiting for Al-Mahdi. It's not an issue of Al-Mahdi. If you're not ready, Al-Mahdi cannot do you anything. The generation has to be ready and prepared for victory. It's not an issue of a leader. The generation have to be ready and prepared. And that's why Bani Israel were not able to enter into Jerusalem until there was a suitable generation for victory. And these were the ones who entered with Yusha bin Nun. And we will see the miracle which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala performed for them. When you have Allah on your side, don't worry. Allah will do everything for you. Yusha bin Nun was fighting with Al-Jababira. Al-Jababira were the people who were living in Jerusalem. They were giants, powerful tyrants. Yusha bin Nun led the children of Israel in that battle. The fighting was furious. The sun was about to set. Yusha bin Nun knew that he would need more time. It's not enough for him. He cannot win, except if the day is longer. If they wait for the next day, the army will regroup and attack again. So he needed more time. Yusha bin Nun pointed to the sun and said, Anti ma'mura wana ma'mur. You are receiving orders and I'm receiving orders. Both of us are receiving orders from Allah. So stop. He told the sun, stop. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made the sun stop for Yusha bin Nun. Until he finished and destroyed the enemy, then the sun started moving again. If you have Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on your side, don't worry. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will take care of you. It's not a matter of numbers or weapons or air force or artillery or battalions. If you have Allah with you, Allah will help you. He pointed to the sun. Stop, it stopped. And this hadith is narrated by Imam Ahmad. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, غَزَى نَبِيٌّ مِّنَ الْأَنْبِيَاءِ فَقَالَ لِقَوْمِهِ لَا يَتْبَعْنِي رَجُلٌ قَدْ مَلَكَ بُضْعِ مْرَأَةِ وَهُوَ يُرِيدُ أَنْ يَبْنِي بِهَا وَلَمْ يَبْنِي Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, one of the anbiya went into war and he told his army, if any one of you just got married, you did not sleep with your wife yet, and you want to, then don't come with me. And then he said, وَلَا أَحَدٌ قَدْ بَنَا بُنْيَانًا وَلَمَّا يَرْفَعْ سُقُفَهَا And if anybody is building a house and he did not build the roof yet, then don't come with me. What is the Nabi of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Yusha bin Nun telling his people? If you got married to a woman and you did not sleep with her yet, don't come with me. If you are building a house and you did not build the roof yet, don't come with me. If you have bought some pregnant goats or pregnant camels, and you're waiting for them to deliver, don't come with me. Yusha bin Nun does not want anybody to come with him if their hearts are attached with something else. If your heart is with your wife, don't come with me. If your heart is with your house, don't come with me. If your heart is with the camels and goats, don't come with me. He's not looking for numbers. He could gather a crowd and take them to war. He said, no, I don't want to. This battle needs people who have ikhlas, who have sincerity. 
If you're coming and doing this half-heartedly, stay home. And then Rasulullah says, فَغَزَى فَدَنَا مِنَ الْقَرْيَةِ حِينَ صَلَاةِ الْعَصْرِ أَوْ قَرِيبًا مِنْ ذَلِكَ فَقَالَ لِلشَّمْسِ أَنْتِ مَأْمُورَةٌ وَأَنَا مَأْمُورٌ اللهم احبسها علي شيئا فحبست عليه حتى فتح الله عليه Rasulullah says he fought until it was time of Asr and then he told the sun you are receiving orders and I am receiving orders oh Allah stop the sun and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala stopped the sun until he achieved victory and he won. This is the story of Sayyidina Yusha bin Nun. They won and they entered into Jerusalem and they started expanding their nation under the banner of La ilaha illallah. Time passed, a few generations, maybe a few centuries. And then the enemies were regrouping and attacking again. And there was a continuous, there was continuous jihad with Bani Israel. Under the leadership of one of their anbiya, Bani Israel came to their Nabi. And they told him, send us a king so that we can fight under his leadership. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَلَمْ تَرَ إِلَى الْمَلَأِ مِنْ بَنِي إِسْرَائِيلَ مِنْ بَعْدِ مُوسَى إِذْ قَالُوا لِنَبِيٍّ لَهُمُ بَعَثْ لَنَا مَلِكًا Have you not thought about the group of the children of Israel after the time of Musa when they said to a prophet of theirs, appoint for us a king? and we will fight in Allah's way. They came to their Nabi, and they told him, we want to fight in the sake of Allah. Their Nabi was very wise. He said, would you then refrain from fighting if fighting was prescribed for you? He said, you're asking for fighting, but when fighting is prescribed on you, will you fight? Because it's easy to claim that you're willing to fight. And people talk, but rarely do we find anybody walking the talk. People say that we're willing to fight in the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they're giving out these sermons and everybody's motivated and encouraged, but then when it comes to the real situation, people back out. And the Nabi of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told them, he said, now you're asking for fighting. What if it is prescribed on you? Will you then fight? They said, definitely. Why shouldn't we fight in the sake of Allah when we have been driven out of our homes and our children? They have kicked us out of our land. How come we will not fight? And we will fight in the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And they gave their promises and they said, we will fight in the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Don't worry. We will fight. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَلَمَّا كُتِبَ عَلَيْهِمُ الْقِتَالِ تَوَلَّوْا إِلَّا قَلِيلًا مِّنْهُمْ But when fighting was ordered for them, they turned away. All except a few of them. Uh, we should never be fooled by the claims that we hear and the talk. Because talk is free. It doesn't cost you anything to talk. But fighting in the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala costs you a lot. You can make a claim that you will open Jerusalem if you want. Talking big is easy, but the sacrifice, and especially long-term sacrifice which jihad needs, that is difficult. Jihad is not only sacrifice, but it's a long-term sacrifice, and that is where people fail. If you are asked to sacrifice in one time, 
you could be fired up with a speech and then you would give out your money, for example, and you would sacrifice. That could happen. But when you're asked to sacrifice for a long period and you're suffering hardship for a long time, that is what causes people to fail. Bani Israel, they said, we're going to fight. Why shouldn't we fight? And we were driven out of our homes and driven out of our children. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prescribed fighting on them, they didn't. But now it's too late to back out because the order is already revealed. They asked for a king, they asked for a leader. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala provided them with one. Their Nabi said, وَقَالَ لَهُمْ نَبِيُّهُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ قَدْ بَعَثَ لَكُمْ طَالُوتَ مَلِكًا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent to you Talut as a king. Allah has appointed for you a king and he is Talut. Now these people who asked to fight in the sake of Allah, they were the first ones to argue with the commandment of their Nabi. They came to the Nabi and they said, we want a leader. When they were provided with a leader, they started arguing and they said, we don't want it. This is, they are asking for a king. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala provided them with a leader and then they said, we don't want him. Why? They gave two reasons. They gave two reasons why they disagree with the appointment of Talut as king. قالوا أنا يكون له الملك علينا ونحن أحق بالملك منه ولم يؤت سعة من المال. Two reasons. Number one, he's not from the nobility. He's not from the noble families. Number two, he's not wealthy. These are the two reasons. How can he be a king? when he does not belong to the high class. And how can he be a king when he's not wealthy? And this is the nature of Bani Israel. What they consider to be success in life is the status of which class you come from because they always use race as an issue. Bani Israel, the Jews, it's an issue to them. We are the chosen people. We are the special people. You are the Gentiles. You are lower class. So race is important to them. And then the second issue, money. These are the criteria that they use. Race and money. And this is a disease that is in the hearts of the children of Israel al-Yahud. And it's also a disease that exists somewhat among us. We consider people to be successful according to how much money they have. What do they say? How much is he? What? worth. How much is he worth? So we qualify the person according to how much money he has. When you say how much the person is worth, what are you talking about? His money. He's worth a billion, he's worth a million. If he doesn't have any money, he's worth nothing. His iman doesn't matter. His salah doesn't matter. His deen doesn't matter. If he doesn't have any money, he's worth nothing. Their Nabi is teaching them that this is wrong. He told them, Allah has chosen him among you. That's it. This is enough to settle the argument. Allah is the one who chose him. Don't argue. His ancestry, his ethnicity, his race doesn't matter. His wealth doesn't matter. Why? Allah has chosen him. So that could have been the end of the conversation. Allah has chosen him, period. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to teach us how to choose leaders. Therefore, the Nabi has told them two qualifications you should be looking for when you're looking for a leader. 
They gave two reasons why he shouldn't be a leader. Their Nabi gave them two reasons why he should be the leader. He said, قَالَ إِنَّ اللَّهَ اصْطَفَاهُ عَلَيْكُمْ وَزَادَهُ بَسْطَةً فِي الْعِلْمِ وَالْجِسْمِ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has increased him amply in two things, knowledge and strength. Allah has given him two things, knowledge and strength. The word knowledge is defined according to the job which you're appointing the leader to. Why am I saying this? Because many times whenever we say knowledge, our minds would immediately take us to fiqh. And that's not necessarily the case. If a person is going to be appointed as a military leader, then he should have a lot of knowledge in fighting, in war. And that's why Rasulullah appointed Khalid bin Walid to be the general, the emir of the army. But it wasn't Khalid bin Walid who was appointed to be the Khalifa. Abu Bakr al-Siddiq was appointed to be the Khalifa. Every position has its knowledge that is required. Talut had the knowledge he needed for the job of leading Bani Israel in jihad. And he had strength. And again, strength is defined according to the job. It's not a matter of physical strength. You don't need to have a bodybuilder for every job. In this job, you need to be strong, physically strong. But in other types of jobs, it needs to have mental strength, or strength of will, or strength of heart. It depends on the type of job. But these are the two things you should look for in the leader. Knowledge and strength. Then he said, Allah gives the kingdom to whomever he wills. It's not up to you. It's up to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَقَالَ لَهُمْ نَبِيُّهُمْ إِنَّ آيَةَ مُلْكِهِ أَنْ يَأْتِيَكُمُ التَّابُوتُ فِيهِ سَكِينَةٌ مِّنْ رَبِّكُمْ وَبَقِيَّةٌ مِّمَّا تَرَكَ آلُ مُوسَى وَآلُ هَارُونَ تَحْمِلُهُ الْمَلَائِكَةِ إِنَّ فِي ذَلِكَ لَآيَةً لَكُمْ إِن كُنْتُمْ مُؤْمِنِينَ Allah, to strengthen their hearts, is going to appoint Talut as a king through a ceremony. And this ceremony would be a miracle from Allah. To strengthen their hearts, so that they would accept him as a leader, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to provide a miracle. Ayah. That ayah was At-Tabut. At-Tabut is a casket. In that casket were some of the belongings of Musa and Harun. And Bani Israel used to consider that to be barakah because it is left behind from the Anbiya. And between them and Musa are centuries, few hundreds of years. So they have been separated from Musa through a long history. They had some of the belongings of Musa and Harun in a casket and they used to consider that to be barakah for them because it's left behind from the Anbiya of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What happened is the enemy was able to take hold of this. And the enemy took it away from them. This ayah, miracle that Allah is going to give them, is that this tabut, casket, will be delivered by the angels to Bani Israel. So the angels carried this casket and brought it back to Bani Israel. And in it, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also says, it's sakina, tranquility, peace for you. 
This belongs to the Anbiya, Allah will bring it back to you. So it's going to be Sakina for you. Talut was appointed as a king. فَلَمَّا فَصَلَ طَالُوتُ بِالْجُنُودِ When Talut set out with the army. Talut now recruited all of the men. And he set out with them. فَصَلَ فَلَمَّا فَصَلَ طَالُوتُ بِالْجُنُودِ Meaning that he separated himself from the rest of Bani Israel. All of the children and the women and the elderly are left behind. And now Talut is with the fighters. He has the soldiers with him. As-Siddi, one of the Mufassirin says, they numbered 80,000. His army was 80,000 soldiers, men. Talut is not looking for numbers. Talut knows that what he is facing ahead needs an iron will. It needs patience. It needs strength. Therefore, he's going to take his ummah, he's going to take this army through a series of tests. He's not going to take them and fight. He's not looking for a crowd. He's looking for strong soldiers who can fight with him. Because Talut, out of his wisdom, knew that if there are any weak soldiers with us, they're going to cause us more harm than benefit. And we know that from the seer of Rasulullah In the Battle of Tabuk, in the Battle of Tabuk, the Munafiqeen were coming to Rasulullah and they were, everyone was giving an excuse to stay behind. One of them, I mean, they were inventing excuses. One of them even came and said, Oh, Rasulullah I fear the fitna of women. I don't want to go to, with you and fight because if I see women, then I would lose my mind. That is the excuse that he gave. He said, please let me stay here. Munafiqeen, they were coming to Rasulullah and everyone was giving an excuse. And Rasulullah knows that there are munafiqeen and he's telling them stay behind. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلَوْ أَرَادُوا الْخُرُوجَ لَا عَدُّوا لَهُ عُدَّةِ If they were serious that they wanted to fight, they would have found ways to prepare for it. But they're not serious. They don't want to fight. These excuses are fake. If they were serious, if they were true in their intentions to fight, لَا عَدُّوا لَهُ عُدَّةِ They would have prepared for it. Now they're waiting till the last moment and then they're coming and saying, I don't have my, my I have business that is not done yet. Allah is saying, If they were serious, they would have prepared for it early. And they would have been able to go. Allah did not want them to go out. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made them stay behind. Allah does not want them to go out with his Nabi. Why? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لَوْ خَرَجُوا فِيكُمْ مَا زَادُوكُمْ إِلَّا خَبَالًا If they went out with you, they would have caused you nothing but weakness. These soldiers, if they come out with you, O Muhammad sallallahu they're going to cause you weakness. Because when the battle starts and the screws are tightened, then they're going to fail. So instead of having a brother next to your side helping you in the battlefield, you're going to have somebody who is putting fear in your heart, telling you, let's run away. Therefore, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, فَثَبَّطَهُمْ Allah did not want them to go out and He told them, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made them stay behind. Because if they went with you, they would cause you nothing but weakness. Khabala. Talut did not want this quality of people to come with him. He did not want them in his army. And we know in the battle of Hunayn, because there were many uh, new Muslims in the army, who just, after Fatah Makkah, there were many who just became Muslim when Rasulullah opened Makkah. That was the uh, hugest army ever 
that Rasulullah had. And one of the Sahaba looked at this army and said, لن يغلب هذا الجيش من قلة. لن نغلب اليوم عن قلة. We're not going to lose because of numbers. Numbers is not going to be a factor in this war. Look at this huge number we had. It happened in the Battle of Hunayn. As soon as they received the first blow from the enemy, they were running in every direction. They were running in every direction. Talud didn't want these with him. So he's going to take them through a test. This test is, Allah is going to test you with a river. Talut made them march in the desert. And he made them thirsty, exhausted and tired. And, when they were, and then when they saw water in front of their eyes, Talut said, don't drink. Thirsty, exhausted, tired. Some of them are maybe wondering that we might face death if we don't drink. Talut said, don't drink. مَنْ شَرِبَ مِنْهُ فَلَيْسَ مِنِّي Whoever drinks does not belong to me. You cannot come with me anymore. وَمَنْ لَمْ يَطْعَمْ فَإِنَّهُ مِنِّي And if you do not drink, then you can come with me. إِلَّا مَنْ اَغْتَرَفَ غُرْفَةً بِيَدَهِ Or if you drink one handful, then you can still come with me. So you either don't drink, or if you drink, you only drink one handful. Just one hand. And one hand cannot take much. Not two hands, one hand. I assume that it is easier not to drink, rather than take one drink. Because when you take that first drink, shaitan is going to make it taste the best sip of water that you ever had in your life. In the end, the result was 80,000 went through this admission test and only 4,000 graduated. Out of 80,000, 76,000 of them drank from the river. Only 4,000 crossed it to the other side. The rest failed. From the first test. 76,000 were left behind. Talut is not looking for numbers. These are men who are willing to go and fight with him. He said, don't come with me. You're not allowed. It's a test of will. Because he wants to have men with him who are willing to stand up against temptations and who are going to be patient against hardship. They're willing to stand up against the strong temptations. And in the same time, they are very patient and enduring hardship. In the end, 4,000 remained with him. When they crossed to the other side of the river, and there are the, left, the ones who were left behind with Talut were only 4,000, then that was another test for them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَلَمَّا جَاوَزَهُ هُوَ وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا مَعَهُ قَالُوا لَا طَاقَةَ لَنَا الْيَوْمَ بِجَالُوتَ وَجُنُودِهِ They said, we have no way of fighting Jalut. 4,000, you want us to fight Jalut? Look at his army. There's no way. The believers, قَالَ الَّذِينَ يَظُنُّونَ أَنَّهُمْ مُلَاقُ اللَّهِ The ones who are sure that they are going to meet Allah, they said, How many times has a small group defeated a larger group with the will of Allah? It's not a matter of numbers. Who are these who are speaking? The ones who are sure that they will meet Allah. So they're not thinking in terms of this dunya, but they're thinking in terms of meeting Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The others are telling them, no, let's be real. Let's be real. 4,000 against this huge army, there's no way we can win. They're thinking in terms of the logic of this world. What they can see with their eyes. They see, I can see with my eyes a larger army. They can defeat us. They're not believing in the unseen. 
So now another group failed. In the end, Talut was left with the pure, the best of the children of Israel, 314. Out of 80,000, 314 remained with Talut. The Sahaba of Rasulullah it is narrated that they said, we were told that the number, the number of mujahideen or fighters which were with Talut was the same number as the ones who fought in the Battle of Badr. More than 310. These are the ones who remained with Talut out of 80,000. Talut took them through tests that would separate between the men and the boys. Set them aside. Take the strong on one side and the weak and the unfit on the other side. In the left, he was, in the end, he was left with 310 or 314. These 314, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about them, وَلَمَّا بَرَزُوا لِجَالُوتَ وَجُنُودِهِ And when they faced Jalut وَجُنُودِهِ Before that, Talut was taking them through tests to see how patient they are, how strong they are, how determined are they. But now, when they are facing the enemy, he is putting all of that aside. It's not your strength, it is not your patience, it is not your will. All of these are means. Now it is depending on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we use the means before. These means, you prepare for them before the battle. But then when you are in the battlefield, you do not depend on the means anymore. You depend on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Rasulullah lined up the army, gave them instructions and orders in the battle of Badr. But then when it was time to fighting, what did Rasulullah do? He went on a hilltop and started making dua. Now you put your whole dependency on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. At that moment, when they were facing Jalut, what did they say? Now they are directing their call to Allah. Oh Allah, shower us or cover us with patience. Allahu Akbar. They're not asking for patience. They're saying, Afrig alayna sabra. Oh Allah, cover us with patience. Because you don't need a little bit of patience. You do not need a small amount. You need a lot. So they said, Afrig alayna. Afrig is like you have a big bucket and you're, and you're pouring it over someone. That is ifraq. أفرغ علينا صبرا Pour on us patience وثبت أقدامنا And make our feet firm وانصرنا على القوم الكافرين And give us victory over the non-believers The battle started A huge army was fighting The small army الفئة القليلة والطالوت Jalut was the king of the enemy Powerful, huge, strong man With arrogance and pride Fighting in the battlefield, asking for anyone to challenge him. Who dares to fight me? Talut said, who will go out and get rid of him? Who will eliminate Jalut? He didn't get any response. A young man, short. He was described by Wahhab ibn Munabbah as a short man. Came up to Talut and said, I will. Talut saw that this is a child. So he made the announcement again, who will go and face Jalut? Nobody responded except this young man. And for the third time, nobody came except him. Talut said, then go. This young man was armed with a slingshot. With a slingshot. But he was armed with iman and trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the heart. 
He went up to Jalut and challenged him. Jalut said, I don't want to fight you. You are a kid. Send somebody stronger. I don't want to kill you. This young man said, but I want to kill you. And he put small pebble in his slingshot and he shot Jalut. And Jalut was dead. He eliminated the king of the enemy and the battle was over. And this young man was Dawood alayhi salam. At that time he was not a Nabi yet. He was a young fighter in the army. After that, he was the one who inherited the kingdom from Talut. And now the children of Israel are going to enter into their golden age under the leadership of Dawood and Sulaiman But this was built on the shoulders of these 314 men who fought in that battle. Just like the Khilafah was established on the shoulders of the 300 and so who fought in the Battle of Badr. That is how you establish Khilafah. It is not by talking. You establish it by the sacrifice. And it's not an issue of numbers, but it's an issue of Iman and strength in the hearts. That is the best era that Bani Israel ever had. After that, it was their downfall. After that, it was the curse of their Anbiya on them. And it was their downfall and it was the end until they eventually were the nation whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was angry with. We are not, even though we are done with the story of Musa, but we're not done with the story of Bani Israel and Bani Israel are going to continue with us until we end the series of the life of the prophets. Until the end of the series, we're still going to be talking about this ummah because every other Nabi that we're going to talk about from now on is from this nation, Bani Israel. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made them the nation of the Anbiya and the nations of Al-Ulama. Out of them were the best scholars of their age and the best people of their time. It wasn't until they neglected the book of Allah and threw it behind their backs. That is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put his wrath and anger on them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَهَزَمُوهُمْ بِإِذْنِ اللَّهِ وَقَتَلَ دَاوُودُ جَالُوتُ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, So they routed them by Allah's leave, and David killed Goliath. وَآتَاهُ اللَّهُ الْمُلْكَ وَالْحِكْمَةَ وَعَلَّمَهُ مِمَّا يَشَاءُ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, And Allah gave him, David, the kingdom after the death of Jalut. وَعَلَّمَهُ مِمَّا يَشَاءُ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also taught him wisdom and عَلَّمَهُ مِمَّا يَشَاءُ and he taught him other things that he willed. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given Sayyidina Dawood kingdom and he has given him al-hikmah, wisdom. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has taught him knowledge. Hikmah was interpreted as good, good judgment and the ability to run the affairs of the people. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given Sayyidina Dawood some miracles and unique qualities. Dawood alayhi salam, first of all, had a beautiful voice. When Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa was hearing uh, Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, who, used, who was the he who had the most beautiful voice among the Sahaba in recitation of Qur'an. Abu Musa al-Ash'ari had the most beautiful voice in reading Qur'an. 
Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa when he heard him read Quran, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa said, لَقَدْ أُوْتِيْتَ مِزْمَارًا مِنْ مَزَامِرِ آلِ دَاوُدِ You have been given a flute of the flutes of the family of Dawood. This does not mean a flute, literally. It means the beauty of the sound. The sound was so beautiful. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa is telling Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, you have part of that beautiful sound. Dawood's voice was so beautiful. In his tasbih and reading of their Quran, which was their book, uh, the book of uh, Dawood, because Dawood salam, he received the book from Allah. We know five books. There are many other messengers who received books from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but we know the names of five. Al-Quran, which was revealed on Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa Al-Injil, the gospel, which was revealed on Isa, Jesus. Al-Tawrah, the Torah, which was revealed on Musa. And then Al-Zabur, which was revealed on Dawood. And then the final one was Suhaf Ibrahim. The scrolls which were revealed to Ibrahim alayhi salam. Dawood would recite Al-Zabur. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made it so easy on him. When Sayyidina Dawood would read Quran and make dhikr, the mountains and the birds would join with him and they would repeat after him. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلَقَدْ آتَيْنَا دَاوُودَ مِنَّا فَضْلًا يَا جِبَالُ أَوِّبِي مَعَهُ وَالطَّيْرِ أَوِّبِي means ترجيع, repeat after him. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is commanding the mountains and the birds to repeat after Dawood. Imagine Dawood salam is reciting Quran and the mountains and the birds are repeating after him. Because everything around us is making tasbih of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says everything is making tasbih, everything is glorifying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but you do not know they're glorifying. And what is the sound of lightning? Thunder. What is thunder? Thunder is a tasbih of Allah. يُسَبِّحُ الرَّعْدُ بِحَمْدِهِ وَالْمَلَائِكَةُ مِنْ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that the thunder is making tasbih. That sound of the thunder is tasbih of Allah. It's glorifying of Allah. Now tell this to a scientist who's going to say, what is this nonsense that you're talking about? You don't know. Let me explain to you what thunder is. He will tell you that thunder is uh, the sound waves that come from the lightning. When the lightning strikes, it causes a vacuum in the air, and that uh, shock wave travels through the air, and that is what you hear in the form of thunder. Well, tell him that is right. And then give him an example. Tell him, imagine that there is an ant, or a kingdom of ants. These ants are scientists like you. And they want to do a research on human beings. They heard that there's a creation out there called human beings. So this advanced kingdom of ants, they want to study about this creature called human being. So they send an ant, a reporter, they send an ant to report about this human being. This ant goes up to this human being and is studying this human being and writing all of the observations. The human being that was sitting turns out to be a Muslim. He says, subhanallah. That Muslim, he says, subhanallah. So the ant is writing its observations. The mouth opened and the tongue moved and air came out 
and that is the voice that we heard. It was due to the movement of the tongue and the lips and the air coming out from the mouth in a form of sound waves that traveled through the air. And we'll go down to the ant kingdom and report these findings. The ant will say, I heard a voice coming out from that human being. The mouth was moving and the tongue was moving and the sound wave came out and it traveled in the air. That's the extent of the knowledge of the ant because it doesn't understand the language of the human being. But the human being, what was he saying? He was saying, subhanAllah. But the ant is not able to understand it, so it describes it as the physical motions that it can see. The same thing with us human beings. We are describing the physical uh, phenomena of thunder or any other voices that we hear in nature because we are incapable of understanding the language of the thunder. We're incapable of understanding the language of the birds or the language of the bees or the language of any other beast that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created. So we describe it in a scientific fashion and way. And in reality, it is tasbih. It is tasbih. يُسَبِّحُ الرَّعْدُ بِحَمْدِهِ The Ra'd is making tasbih. The unique thing with Sayyidina Dawood and his son Sulaiman is that they understood the language of the animals and the birds. And Dawood had another quality that his son Sulaiman did not have, that when Dawood would make tasbih, the creation around him would join him in tasbih. It is a miracle. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives the anbiya miracles. Sayyidina Dawood would make tasbih, the mountains are making tasbih with him, and the birds are making tasbih with him. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also gave him another miracle, and that is... Iron, steel, would become soft in his hands. He could move it however he wishes. We made iron soft in his hands. Humans in that time, they had iron. But the process of making tools out of it was very difficult and time-consuming. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made iron soft in the hands of Dawood. He would mold it however he wants. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then taught him how to make shields, armory, out of steel in a new way. So it was a new invention. Before that, they would make armory in the form of iron plates, which were solid. So the soldier would have to wear that heavy iron plate, which has two downsides to it. First of all, it's heavy. The second downside is that it, it prevents flexibility in movement because it's a solid plate of iron, steel. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala taught Dawood how to make armory out of rings of iron. So he would make the iron into rings and attach the rings together and attach rings to those rings until he would make a whole arm, an armory that would cover the body. And this prevents and this uh, eliminates the two downsides of the other armory because it's very light in weight. Rings are very light. And it's very flexible because it's rings you can move freely. But it offers the same protection because it is from iron. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَعَلَّمْنَاهُ صَنْعَةَ لَبُوسٍ لَكُمْ We taught him the making of metal coats. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala taught him how to make these metal coats. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لِتُحْصِنَكُمْ مِنْ بَأْسِكُمْ So that it will protect you in your fighting. Allah is the one who taught him how to do this. In the other ayah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَنِعْمَلْ سَابِغَاتٍ وَقَدِّرْ فِي السَّرْدِ Saying, make you perfect coats of mail, balancing well the rings of chain armor 
and work you men righteously. Truly, I am also here of what you do. وَقَدِّرْ فِي Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling Dawud make the rings proportionate. Don't make them too large, because if they're too large, they could be penetrated. And if they are too small, there could be some other negative aspects to it. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling Dawud وَقَدِّرْ فِي make them the right size. In modern terms, we would call this a new technological invention even though it happened through a miracle with Dawud But I'm getting to another point. In modern terms, we call this a modern invention, just like a car or a computer or an airplane or whatever. Even though we all believe that everything is created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, somehow subconsciously, we attribute these things to the human beings who made them. So we're always impressed with uh, the manufacturer, whether it be IBM, or Intel, or Toyota, or Sony, or whatever manufacturer is making for us these new inventions. And we always hold the scientists in high esteem, whether it is Isaac Newton, or uh, 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 Edison, Edison, or others, or Bell, or whoever, Einstein, we rarely thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for these things. Rarely do you find somebody saying alhamdulillah for the car or alhamdulillah who made communication easy or alhamdulillah who made transportation easier for us, alhamdulillah who provided us with the telephone or the car or the airplane or whatever. Whenever we attribute the credit, we give the credit to the human being. Now it's true that this happened through the human being. That is true. But in the end, who is the one who made it possible for the human being to do it? It's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking about Dawood salam particularly making these shields, what did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say? وَعَلَّمْنَاهُ صَنْعَةَ لَبُوسٍ لَكُمْ لِتُحْسَنَكُمْ مِنْ بَأْسِكُمْ فَهَلْ أَنْتُمْ شَاكِرُونَ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, we taught him how to make armory for you, so are you going to be grateful? Allah is telling the human beings, it is Dawood who made this for you. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not see, be, say, be grateful to Dawood. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, be grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because that is where the credit belongs. So whatever technological accessories we have, credit should go to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the one who created everything. It is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it is a blessing from Allah. And it is a test for the ones who made these things. And it's a test for the nations who are producing these things for us. Who are they giving credit to? In France, there was a Muslim PhD student who did an excellent research. And then he wrote on the cover page of that PhD dissertation. He said, and all credit goes to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if there is any mistake in this research, it is because of me. His professor who happens to be an atheist, he said, you work for years on this research, and then you give credit to someone who didn't do anything for you. And you, the one who worked for four years, you say that all mistakes belong to you. What's wrong with you? Can't you think straight? Now you're going to be a PhD student. I'm going to give you a PhD. And you're still thinking in this backward mentality. They don't, the credit doesn't go to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We should say Alhamdulillah for everything. 
Alhamdulillah for everything. Every, every tool or every instrument or every machine or every, anything that we have around us, it, it, it came to us from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Through mankind. I mean, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you find that many of these inventions were invented in what seems to be a random way. I mean, the scientist was sitting down a tree and then the apple fell down. This might be a story, but with penicillin, we know for a fact that it came from a random observation. They were studying something else and somehow they discovered penicillin. And with many other, other things, they, the scientists would be studying something and then this thing comes along on the side and they found out about it and it turns out to be a greater invention or a greater study than the, what they were studying before. Who is turning their attentions to these directions? It is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They say it happened randomly. It's not random. Everything is with the qadr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is qadr from Allah. Taqdeer from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There's nothing that is haphazard and random in the universe. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَشَدَدْنَا مُلْكَهُ وَآتَيْنَاهُ الْحِكْمَةَ وَفَصْلَ الْخِطَابِ We made his kingdom strong and gave him wisdom and sound judgment in speech and decision. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given him a strong kingdom and we said that this was the golden age of the children of Israel. The time of Dawood and Sulaiman alayhi salam. That is when their kingdom reached to its peak. And that is when it was the kingdom of Tawheed, the unity of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the kingdom of Islam. After that, the religion was changing and children of Israel were going down. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given him strength in his kingdom. His kingdom was strong. And Allah has given him wisdom and the good judgment. Allah has given him decisiveness. Being decisive is important for somebody who is in the position of Dawood Dawood was a king and he had to deal with enemies, he had to deal with internal problems, he had to deal with, with many difficult conflicting situations. Therefore, decisiveness is important in such a situation. It is a quality that is needed for somebody in such a position. When you're dealing with militaries and you're dealing with enemies and you're dealing with huge nations around you and strong enemies, the issue of decisiveness is important. And decisiveness also is needed in court. See, there are some places where you need decisiveness, some places where it's not needed that much. In court, it's also needed. You have to have the decisive judgment. You can't go back and forth. You can't have one foot to the left, one foot to the right. You have to have a clear understanding of the situation and then a clear judgment. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given Sayyidina Dawood the decisiveness. Fasl al-khitab. He had the ability to study the situation and take a final judgment and go ahead with it. And then he would not retreat and not hesitate. Dawood salam reached to this stage after he went through training. See, people don't suddenly come out of nowhere with all of these qualities. We learn things through our knowledge and life experiences. Two sources. Knowledge on one side and life experiences from the other side. That is how we learn. And that is why we need to understand the importance of the concept of tarbiyah. Tarbiyah is important in Islam. Tarbiyah, training and raising up a person from one stage to another. You cannot have a revolutionary sudden change. Things have to go step by step. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put the sahaba in the furnace. He put them through the tests for years and years. So in the end when they graduated, they graduated with the highest certificates. Put the sahabi in any situation, he will never fail. Because they went through 
trial after trial, test after test, in the school of Muhammad when they graduated in the end, Rasulullah knew that he has left behind men who can carry the message. But they went through experiences and they learned from their mistakes. We're not born with all the qualities. The same with the Anbiya. I mean, with Rasulullah Allah put him through 40 years of preparation. He didn't become a prophet when he was born. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala planned the life of Muhammad day by day. Everything in the life of Muhammad for the 40 years before prophethood was for a purpose. And the same thing with Musa when we talked about, we already talked about this when he was raised in the palace of Fir'aun. That was an experience for him. And Yusuf with Dawood Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also prepared him through some tests. We're going to talk about one of these tests, a sample. Dawood used to have a mihrab, a place of worship where he would stay in seclusion, in solitude, and worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala away from everything, away from all distractions. And he would not allow anyone to come in. Suddenly, out of nowhere, two men appeared in front of Dawood. They jumped over, they climbed over, and suddenly Sayyidina Dawood saw two men in front of him. So you can see that was, there was an element of shock and surprise in this, Right? Suddenly, out of nowhere, you're in, in the depths of your tasbih and dhikr, and now you find two men standing in front of you, inside your house. Sayyidina Dawood was in a state of shock and surprise. And they saw that he was worried. They said, لا تخف, don't worry. They said, وَهَلْ أَتَاكَ نَبَأُ الْخَصْمِ إِذْ تَسَوَّرُوا الْمِحْرَابِ إِذْ دَخَلُوا عَلَى دَاوُودَ فَفَزِعَ مِنْهُمْ قَالُوا لا تخف. We are two litigants, one of whom has wronged the other. Therefore judge between us with truth and treat us not with injustice and guide us to the right way. So David السلام, was presented with a case. These two men said that we have a dispute and we want you to judge upon us with justice and truth. The case is as follows. <laughs> Verily, this my brother has 99 ewes, sheep, while I have only one sheep, and he says, hand it over to me, and he overpowered me in speech. One man is saying that this other person standing in front of you has 99 ewes, sheep, female sheep. And I have only one. And he took away from me that one single sheep that I have. And he didn't give it back to me. There are many stories about this ayah, but all of them are Israeliyat. We're going to stay away from them and we're going to stick with the Quran, with the authentic. So this man said, he has 99 sheep, so he has much more than I do. He's wealthier than me. 
and I only have one, and he overpowered me, he fooled me, he took me over with his beautiful words, and I handed over to him my single sheep, and now he doesn't want to give it back to me. Dawood gave his judgment. He said, قال لقد ظلمك بسؤال نعجتك إلى نعاجه وإن كثيرا من الخلطاء ليبغي بعضهم على بعض إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وقليل ما هم David said he has wronged you in demanding your you in addition to his use. And verily many partners oppress one another except those who believe and do righteous, except those who believe and do righteous good deeds, and they are few. Dawood said that he has wronged you. He shouldn't have taken away from you your sheep. And then Dawood said, and partners, they always wrong each other. Except the few. Believers. Dawood is telling us, this is a thousand years, thousands of years ago, that most of the time partners, they wrong each other. Partnership, you usually find that every partner is trying to take over the other. And every partner is trying to outwit or try to outsmart the other one. And everyone is trying to work out the best deal for himself. And that always happens between partners, and there is an exception to that, and these are the ones who believe. And this is a warning to us that whenever you have a partnership, have it very clear. Have the terms clear, written down. That is very important in partnerships to have clear agreements. When Dawood said that, the two, the two men standing in front of him disappeared and vanished. Without saying anything. They suddenly disappeared. Dawood immediately knew that this was a test from Allah and that he has committed a mistake. He knew. He didn't need anybody to tell him. What was the mistake of Sayyidina Dawood? He didn't listen to the other side. He heard one side of the story. It sounded very appealing. Ninety-nine sheep and you have only one and he took it away from you. Clear oppression. He stole, I mean, this man has 99 sheep and, he, and you have only one and he took it away from you and he gave his judgment. He didn't hear from the other side. And this was a test from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah wants to test him. Why? Because Dawood is going to assume a very important responsibility and he needs to have patience in giving out his judgment. And that's why they surprised him. That element of surprise and shock was to knock Sayyidina Dawood uh, off his guard and suddenly uh, present the case to him very fast. So Sayyidina Dawood also gave his answer very fast. So the whole setup was in a way push Sayyidina Dawood to give fast or a hasty judgment. And that is what happened. It was a test from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala but Sayyidina Dawood immediately realized that it was a test from Allah and that he has committed a mistake. What was his reaction? He made sujood to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَظَنَّ دَاوُودُ أَنَّمَا فَتَنَّاهُ فَاسْتَغْصَرَ رَبَّهُ وَخَرَّ رَاكِعًا وَأَنَابَ 
And David guessed that we have tried him and sought forgiveness of his Lord, and he fell down prostrate and turned to Allah in repentance. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَغَفَرْنَا لَهُ ذَلِكَ We forgave him. وَإِنَّ لَهُ عَنْدَنَا زُلْفَ وَحُسْنَ مَآبٍ And for him is a near access to us and a good place of final return. After that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, يَا دَاوُودُ إِنَّا جَعَلْنَاكَ خَلِيفَةً O Dawood, we are appointing you as a Khalifa, as a successor over mankind. When did this happen? After Dawood went through the test. So the scholars say something interesting. They say that Dawood after the mistake was better than the Dawood before the mistake. Even though he committed a mistake, but Dawood after the mistake was better than the Dawood before the mistake. If we learn from our mistakes, we improve through our mistakes. Because now Dawood learned the right way to judge and to be patient and to listen from both sides and not to be hasty in his judgment. And that qualified him to be king over mankind. Tawbah, repentance to Allah can make us better. Why? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمَن تَابَ وَآمَنَ وَعَمِلَ صَالِحًا the ones who make repentance and believe in Allah and do good deeds, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will change their bad deeds into good ones. Not only will Allah clear your account and you will start with a zero balance, not only that, but your previous sins will turn into good deeds. So the evil... Imagine it, this dirt, this dirt that you have, this dirt that you have in your past will turn into pure gold. Tawbah, that is tawbah, learning from mistakes. But we need to repent. Sayyidina Dawood, he asked Allah for forgiveness, Allah forgave him and he became better. Same thing with Adam alayhi salam. He became a prophet, when did he become a prophet? Before the mistake or after? He became a prophet after he committed his mistake, brought us down from paradise. He became a prophet after that. So we learn, from our, we learn from our mistakes. But if we continue doing mistakes and we don't get the lesson and we don't get the point and we fail from test to test, we don't benefit anything and we become worse. The point is to learn and to benefit from the experiences that we have. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, فَحْكُمْ بَيْنَ النَّاسِ بِالْحَقِّ وَلَا تَتَّبِعِ الْهَوَىٰ Rule among people with truth and don't follow your desires. Do not follow your desires. Why? For it will mislead you from the path of Allah. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Those who wander astray from the path of Allah will have a severe torment. Again, Allah is telling Dawood to judge among the people and to rule among them and to govern among them with truth. And do not follow your desire. The most dangerous thing on the Islamic judicial system is following desires. The most dangerous thing in our relations with one another is when we base it on our own desires and not on the law of Allah. And as we say in Arabic, and I think this, this, this saying is also in English, justice is in the heart of the judge. The law can be on paper. 
but if the judge does not want to apply it, he can find ways around it. You can. Therefore, justice is in the heart of the judge. And that is why we can only have justice through true Islamic system. Why? Because you either have good laws and a corrupt judge, or you have a good judge and corrupt laws. In the Muslim world now, in most of the places, we have a corrupt law with a corrupt judge. We have them both. Here in America, you have a corrupt law, but sometimes you have a good judge, sometimes you don't. The combination that we want is a good law and the good judge. And that could only happen when the law is Islamic and when the heart of the judge is Islamic. But if the heart of the, ju- uh, the, heart of the judge is not Islamic, no matter how good the law is, if it is Quran sitting on his desk, it wouldn't do anything. If the heart of the judge is not in line with the law, it won't do anything. Because we have in some Muslim countries, Islamic law on paper, we do. In many Muslim countries, for example, the uh, laws relating to the family are Islamic. Divorce and marriage and their children rights and all of that and women, uh, the, uh, the divorced and the widow, most of that is Islamic. But the problem is with the heart of the judge. Bribery and all those other problems. When we talk about Sharia, unfortunately, this is another problem that we have. Now we all say we want Sharia, we want Sharia. But then when we look at it, we find that what the people are looking for isn't really Sharia. I mean, ask, you find many people say, ask them what is your definition of Sharia? What, why, why are you asking for Sharia? He says, we want them to cut the hand of the one who steals, and to kill the killer, and to stone the adulterer. Is that Sharia? Is that all what Sharia is about? And then they would say, this certain country or that place is applying Sharia. Why? Because they would cut the hand of the one who steals, and they would kill the killer. This is only part of a section of the Islamic law, which is the criminal code, the criminal law. That's it. I mean, do you think that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent all of the anbiya and all of the religions just to cut the hand of the one who steals and to stone the adulterer and to kill the killer? And then also, what segment of the society do these people make? The thieves and the killers and the rapists and the adulterers. What proportion do they make? It's a minority of the society. So all what Islam does is deal with these people and the rest of us, we don't have any law to apply to us. Is that the Islamic law? Is that Sharia? That's not Sharia. That is only part of the Islamic law in, which is uh, relating to the criminal code or the criminal section of law. The Islamic Sharia that we are searching for is based on one important pillar and that is justice. Justice for everyone. If you're going to court, you would get a fair trial. The judge would treat you justly, preserving the rights of others. Justice is an important pillar. And then the Sharia, the Sharia is to apply the religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala completely. Now let's look at the four khulafa, which are our standard that we look at. Take Abu Bakr, the first khalifa. During all the time of Abu Bakr, we don't know in history that he has stoned any adulterer. Does that mean that Abu Bakr al-Siddiq was not applying Sharia? This case never showed up in his time. Abu Bakr was busy with applying Sharia day and night. What was he doing? The establishment of Islam by fighting the Murtaddin and establishing a strong Islamic government, that was applying the Sharia. So he was dealing with this project, and that is Sharia. 
And then in the time of Umar bin Khattab, he came and found stability that was left behind from Abu Bakr al-Siddiq. The Islamic Khilafah was already stable. Umar bin Khattab did not have to do anything. It was stabilized by Abu Bakr al-Siddiq. Now Umar bin Khattab has to establish the institutions. Because you already have stability, now you establish the institutions. So he made a diwan, which is the treasury, to take care of the salaries of the government employees and the army. And then he established new ways and laws to divide the land among Muslims. And then he started uh, paving the roads and making these uh, infrastructure services for the Muslim ummah. And then he worked on a, uh, some other projects which were dealing with the very, very important role of the Khalifa, and that is the issue of jihad. And he is the one who took care of the jihad with the Persian Empire. By the time Abu al-Khattab died, the Persian Empire was dead. It was over with. Abu al-Khattab, because the Persian Empire was the stumbling block between Islam and the East. The Persian Empire was that wall that was preventing Islam from getting into the East. Umar ibn Khattab eliminated that wall. So by the time of Uthman ibn Affan, Islam was spreading all over Central Asia. And then Uthman ibn Affan, what was his sharia? What was the establishing of sharia in the time of Uthman? He worked on a very important project and that is the preservation of Quran. That's a sharia. And also spreading uh, towards the east and continuing with the futuhat towards the north. And then in the time of Ali ibn Abi Talib, he had to deal with the internal conflicts which were in the Muslim Ummah. So Ali ibn Abi Talib devoted his time of Khilafah, which was four years, to solve this internal conflict that was caused by the death of Uthman ibn Affan, by the assassination of Uthman ibn Affan. Ali ibn Abi Talib had to deal with that problem for four years. And then in the time of Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan, he came to deal with other problems. So he is the first one to establish the Islamic Navy. Because now the Muslims need to go in the sea. And they need to spread towards the north in the Roman Empire. So he's the first one to establish the Islamic Navy. That is Sharia. That is the establishment of Sharia. They need to work on these projects which would serve the Muslim Ummah. So the Muslims in the time of uh, Umar bin Khattab or in the times of these Khulafa, they would live with peace and security. They would travel from the east to the west of the Muslim Ummah fearing no one but Allah. Safety and security. They would do their business and they would not worry. They would leave their stores open and go to Salah. This is the establishment of Sharia. And this is what we are looking for. It's not an issue of just establishing this issue of, of, of Sharia, which was important, obviously, the criminal law, because you cannot have security unless the criminals are put at check. But Sharia is larger than that. Sharia encompasses everything that is Islamic. Iqamat al-Din, establishment of the religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And a very, very, very important thing for the leader. Don't follow your desires. Our problem, our problem now with Islamic work is that we always deal with others based on our desires. I have a certain problem with you. I, try, I continue with that problem and I try to justify it from an Islamic point of view. So it's not Islam that is instigating my dealing with you. It is my hatred towards you, and then I'm using Islam to fulfill it. No, we should instigate our actions based on Islam. And then we push our desires to follow the direction of the Sharia. Wherever Islam goes, that is where we push our desire. And this is, this is the jihad of the nafs. 
You don't do things according to what you want. You do things according to what Allah wants. You do it Allah's way, not your way. And that is a very difficult discipline. And that is a very difficult and important jihad. The jihad of your soul to fight these internal conflicts that are going in your heart to follow the law of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to follow what Allah wants from you. And that is the meaning of the word Islam. To submit to Allah. That is what it means. Submission. So you submit your will to Allah. You follow what Allah wants from you. Sami'na wa ata'na. We listen and we obey. Sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam tasliman kathira. For further information, please contact Al-Bashir Publications and Translations at 1-877-745-3330 or 303-574-0095. Our fax number is 303-373-0943 or visit our website at www. Dot albashir.com. That's www.al-basheer.com. You can also write to our address at 10515 East 40th Avenue, Suite 108, Denver, Colorado, 80239-3264. All rights reserved for Al-Bashir Company for publications and translations. No part of the series may be reproduced in any form without written permission from the publisher. Unlawful reproductions may prevent Muslim businesses from further producing quality programs. Your consideration is greatly appreciated. Jazakumullahu khairan. Please proceed to the next CD.